Hello and welcome back. After the huge success of the mini-series on Queen Mary I, I invited back Dr. Johanna Strong, and she has brought to us another great topic. I hope you enjoy. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast's mini-series on queenship. I am your host, Dr. Johanna Strong, and in this series, we are traveling through time and around the world to learn more about global queenship. In today's episode, I am joined by Jessica Storischuk and Dr. Francoise Lejeune to find out more about queenship in the British Empire, focusing on Victoria and her relationship with Canada and India and Africa. Jess is a historian of monarchy focusing on the 19th and 20th centuries. Her main research topics include the Canadian monarchy, royal tours, and representations of the monarchy in the press. She also works for the news site Royal Central and has a website that focuses on making history and culture broadly accessible. And you can visit that website at anhistorianabouttown.com. Francoise is Professor of British and Canadian History at the Université de Nantes. She is a specialist of the Victorian British Empire and has published widely on society and politics in Canada and its relation to the British Empire. If you thought you could get through a Queenship series with me without talking about Canada, you have once again misunderestimated me. (laughs) So let's get into today's episode. So thank you so much both for joining me And I want to get started really in looking at why you got interested in queenship, especially queenship and the British Empire. So Francoise, let's start with you on this one. All right, many thanks, Johanna, for your invitation and um, to talk about queenship and uh, Queen Victoria particularly. Well, for me, it is a long story, but I'll make it very short. Um, It all began when I was working on my PhD, and that's about 30 years ago, that's to tell you how old I am. Uh, I was then I was already focusing on the British Empire and I chose to study what is now called settler colonialism in British Columbia. And it's the most Western province of Canada, as many of you know, of course. But at the time, it was called the last jewel of the crown in Canada. And it was the perfect example of a colonial project orchestrated or launched from Britain in the 1840s. So at the very beginning of uh, Victoria's reign, obviously. Part of my research was based on a series of family correspondences written by middle-class settlers, British settlers, uh, residing in Victoria, the new capital city of the colony, and most of the letters that were written then by usually the women, obviously, writing home to their family, mentioned the Queen at some point. So all these bourgeois ladies were usually inquiring about the queen, about, you know, her courtship, and then um, the family was growing, and and so forth and so on. And in most of their papers, I also came across, you know, the, those daguerreotypes that were made of uh, Albert and Victoria, copies of those, and there were also newspaper clippings describing how the queen was dressed and how they could copy the queen's dresses when she was on such and such outings, and so forth and so on. So I think that the the the, the desire to uh, imitate, to emulate the royal couples, and to this fascination for Queen Victoria was in my research from day one, and I felt that this was the at the core of the sentimental link, obviously, that was connecting this those British settlers to home. 
at the time the victorian the people living in victoria was called more english than the english themselves but i mean even through the second generation there was this love for the queen um i remember also working on this episode and maybe uh, jessica will talk about it as well when princess louise uh, victoria's sixth child visited british columbia at that time she was living in ottawa her husband was uh, the Marquis of Lorne, governor general, appointed by the queen. And she visited the West and stayed a couple of days in Victoria. She was the talk of the town. I mean, though he was taking precedence over her, all the ladies in the letters I read were really prepping up for the day when they would see Princess Louise. So there was major craze. She was called the daughter of so great and good monarch, the daughter of a, our beloved sovereign. Uh, and they, you know, they had to be to, to be seen and to be visible and to, to see Louise at this point. So I was this was, in fact, the beginning of all my, you know, the story that I had with Queen Victoria, because how come that by proxy, Queen Victoria was able to foster such a demonstration of devotion, fealty, uh, this I needed to decipher and to understand. But it took me many, many years, in fact, through lectures and seminars before, in fact, I, I began looking at Queen Victoria. And it's only recently, a couple of years back, that I've, you know, that I started working on that book that I'm actually working on now, because the students kept asking me, how come there's no book on Queen Victoria and her empire? What did she think really about the settlers, you know, in Canada? So this this is what I, I, I talk about and I might answer some of your questions today. It's always amazing to me when we think about how big the British Empire is in Victoria's reign, just what a grasp she has on it, even in places that she's never been to or has, has never kind of seen firsthand. But that, as you say, she sends these proxies to support her power and she's kind of so loved around, well, by settlers is so loved around the world. It's it's just amazing that kind of authority that she has. Mm -hmm. But even I, I, I noted that uh, when Louise visited the West, for instance, there were also some Indian chiefs or indigenous chiefs, mm -hmm. if you like. There were some uh, Chinese workers. They all had to address something to the queen. Well, we've seen this before because we have colleagues who work on uh, the same thing in Australia, but the, they were fascinated by the, the way the queen was above the state, that as if, you know, in the letters, they're asking her to protect them against some sort of dominion or some sort of even settler colonialism, as if she had that power to reach them out over, you know, sort of hovering over the, the land as, as, as it was done previously, I guess, by George III when he protected the indigenous uh, tribes as well. So, but it's, it was lingering, uh, you know, still at the end of the 19th century. So. Absolutely. And that, that really builds into today. Um, this, this conversation of the, Canadian federal government doesn't kind of speak with Indigenous nations. Those aren't their equals. The equal is the crown. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's fascinating to see that that's something that hasn't changed from Victoria's time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Jess, what about you? What got you interested in, in queenship and in kind of the, the Queen's roles in Canada? So my answer is, I suspect, similar to many people who are born in the late 80s or perhaps early 90s, there was a book series, a children's book series that came out called The Royal Diaries, where it was 
um, each book with a different royal from a different area or time period. And usually with when they are a teenager, uh, Victoria is one of them. But I started reading these and were fast. I was fascinated by them. And there was a section at the end of each book that actually had sources. Granted, they were appropriate for third and fourth grade readers, but they were uh, gave kind of photographs and uh, there was pieces of letters and things. And I was so fascinated by it um, and ended up going to the library to find more biographies. And this was the 90s. So I ended up reading a lot of adult biographies of these people uh, when I was 11, 12. Um, but that got me started. And then in university, I did uh, all of my degrees are in history. At the undergrad level, my professors were more, uh, the department was more of a socialist department. So kind of steered slightly away from monarchy. So I actually, my degrees are focusing in Irish history, but I was always came back to the history of monarchy. And then when I decided to continue on my own research and I kept coming back to this question of the crown's role in Canada and especially uh, the fact that so much of Canada's history uh, post 1867, we have had a queen, two queens have dominated Canada's, we'll say modern history and just the role that that takes and something that struck me pretty much the whole time I've been reading any sort of historical sources is the emphasis placed on men. So I remember in high school, when we learned about Queen Victoria, it was mostly about Sir Johnny MacDonald. And Victoria was just kind of there in the background. And I understand he also played a very important role. The government is important, but it was just, she was always presented as, oh, she's just kind of there. She just happens to be there. And the more you poke into it, as I'm sure Francoise will say, she wasn't just there. She just didn't just happen to be there. Um, and even Queen Elizabeth II during her reign, very different from Victoria's position, but still played a different role, but still an active role. So just, I've always been long fascinated that people assume, especially, I don't know if people just hear Queen and assume, oh, they're in the background. Um, and I'll, even people reduce the role of a consort um, and what they can do and the things that they accomplish and everything. But especially in the cases of Victoria and Elizabeth and Canada, they they did a lot. They accomplished a lot and they were involved in a lot, both good and bad. And so I keep coming back to that and mulling over that. It is a, a particularly complex relationship. And we'll hear this later in the series as well when we talk. Um, Jess is, is back on talking to me uh, and we're joined by Dr. Cindy McCreary talking about this relationship in Oceania and Canada and kind of how these Indigenous crown relationships happen and just how complex they are. And we're going to talk as well. I know you do a lot of work on royal tours. That's going to be in the later episode as well. So please do, listeners, stick around uh, for that one when it comes out. And I, I will say, Jess, I grew up on the... I forget what the series is called, but on these royal diaries. Um, and I think they, and Dear Canada, which is a series yeah. about kind of Canadian teenage girls yeah. living through historic moments. They have a lot to answer for, uh, for getting people into history. They do. I also just learned recently, this is an aside, that there's a Dear America series. As a Canadian, 
obviously we had the world diaries and we had dear Canada. I just learned there's dear America. It makes sense. I just, I, we never, my school did not order those, um, but yes. And I remember even in the dear Canada, those were a bit later, but I remember also I read the queen Victoria Royal diary and then the dear Canada, a few of them also mentioned um, like Francois said in the, uh, in, uh, settlers letters obviously these are fictional but these young girls and i'm sure they're based on actual people or an amalgamation of people and these young girls were also mentioned victoria and so i thought that was really well done yeah yeah it's it's amazing to see kind of where historians start and then where we kind of end up and keep going and i think that that ties us really well uh, in, in an accidental segue into what you're currently working on. I love hearing about this. Uh, Francoise, what is, is currently on your desk as your priority for work? Well, my, my work is on that book I was telling you about, on Queen Victoria and her empire. And the book is about how she uh, understands how she perceives, you know, those diversities of uh, cultures and ethnic background, uh, how she can be fascinated sometimes or not so, so interested in some other colonies. Um, so I'm working on her diaries, of course, her letters and, you know, how you know she was a prolific writer. So it takes forever to to read everything. But uh, uh, so it's an ongoing project, which I hope to complete in a year or two, because it's I have to do many things in between. But I, I love doing it. You know, it's it's uh, comforting to go back to this. But what you see, of course, is a very egotistic relationship that the Queen builds between, well, she she self-fashioned herself empress in the 1870s, uh, empress of India, but also empress of Ireland. We don't know about that, but it's just probably the same title. Um, and she has this sort of specific relationship with different colonial territories, but they bring her love, and that's what she loves, actually. So uh, there's a lot of eagerness, as I think, as as well in um, the way she wants to possess somehow part of the empire. So I think we'll talk later on about how she brings the empire home. But she collects uh, artifacts, obviously, but also people, colonial subjects in a way. Uh, she also asks painters, people who are in capacity to bring sceneries and landscapes to send them to her. So she she is into that sort of collection. And she wants to be surrounded by this. Um, I The other angle that I, I took as well in this book is her political involve, involvement. And this is less known, I think. She um, was very involved, in fact, in fashioning and in, in uh, um, you know, like were making some imperial policies even. Even though the English constitution says she's not allowed to do so, uh, she found, and this is to the consort, Prince Albert, who was, I think it was sort of, that was his idea. She found ways, loopholes to influence the prime ministers, the secretaries of state for the colonies. She always comes up with new plans for the empire, or she always, you know, um, would, would, would describe a plan that is made up by Gladstone or something as not really relevant. So she is involved. Uh, she does not hesitate to uh, write directly to her governors everywhere in the colonies by telling them, well, I'm the one who appointed you. So she's going to 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 continue having this sort of close relationship with the men she appoints. Um, this is part, of course, of the prerogative to nominate, but she usually asks them to see them before they go so that she knows that they, they're going to have a sort of devotion 
And she resorts to that sort of traditional court, you know, court, I don't know, courtly way of uh, saying, well, you have to be dedicated to your queen and, uh, and ask fidelity from you and loyalty. And it works because many of these men do write letters to her, bringing her fresh information, as she says, which sometimes she can use to as a sort of power of leverage to tell her ministers, well, look, this is not the information I got. This man wrote directly to me, his queen, and this is the information I have. So, um, so she that's that's very interesting. This queenship that she uses uh, is is I think fascinating. And there's another example I, I, which I find interesting as well. When she's at, at the end of her reign, when they are going to Africa to colonize, you know, like uh, part of Eastern Africa mostly, she wants to keep in touch with the, the the commanders in the field, but she never knows how to get to them directly because that's not her prerogative. So she would work through their wives. She would write to the wives and get a start a relationship, and then eventually she gets to the men. So, uh, well, that's her way of doing things. So that's that's what I I. I I'm fascinated by actually, you know, uh, she is very involved. Actually, we don't know her much as a queen of England. That she was, she rarely fashioned England in her. You know, people loved her for who she was, wanted to live like her, maybe. But she never was interested in the really the fate of her own people as much as she was about you know people abroad or overseas. So, so that's what I'm working on now. Yeah, and as as you say, this self-fashioned idea of empress, I was trying to think kind of back. I I generally pride myself on knowing about British queens. And I thought I I had forgotten that she was also Empress of Ireland. But I was also at an exhibit at the Canadian History Museum on the shipwreck, the Empress of Ireland. I thought that should have gone together, that who is the ship named after? But it did not click in my brain until you said it. Oh, I'm sure I, like hopefully many listeners, are looking forward to when your book is out in the world. Hopefully you will have many people reading it. Oh, I'm you. excited thank to you. see those ideas come out into the world. Okay, thank you. And Jess, I know kind of we've recorded a later episode already, and so... Listeners will get to hear this again uh, in a few weeks' time. But what what is currently on your slate um, of of research items you're working on? Yeah, just a side note before I start, because uh, I lived in Ireland. That is not something that they celebrate a lot, understandably. A very complex history with the monarch in Ireland. Um, but yes, it's always fascinating that she was Empress of Ireland, and it's always kind of downplayed to everything else. Um, but yes, in terms of my own projects, I've got two research streams going. So in the first, uh, most people don't know this, but I am a ballet dancer myself. So I am actually looking at representations of historic queens on the stage. Uh, so currently, I've started with the Northern Ballet's Victoria. So I'm looking at how Victoria is actually portrayed in this ballet and what characteristics they're giving her and just how that comes across uh, through the choreography, through the performance, etc. Um, and then we also have, in, for example, we have this arena in Anastasia and there are a few other examples I'm drawing on. So that's a really interesting area I've never really thought about before with these other portrayals because a lot of people work understandably on television and film portrayals but we see less in the theater, less work has been done on what happens in the theater, especially in ballet. 
So that's been really interesting. And uh, my other project is working on, I'm looking at royal tours to Canada uh, from 1901 to 1977. So I kind of go from the end of the like Victoria's death to Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee. Um, and it, it's surprisingly relevant, especially now because everyone's asking after the coronation, where will Charles and Camilla be going? They obviously, the family needs to get out there and do their Commonwealth tours, but who, a lot of the discussion here right now is who will come, who will go where, who is going to be the quote unquote best messenger and best interaction. Uh, and so looking at royal tours and really how those are represented in the press and what the responses are. Um, I'm currently just trying to, I pick a tour and then work on that. It seems to be the best way to wrap my head around it. And I'm, I started focusing on the larger tours only because we have these smaller tours, like the Duke of Kent is a very short tour in 1942, but it's a, a few days, it's during the war. It does get uh, press coverage obviously, but not as much and there's not as many, I can't compare across provinces and across, across different journals. So I'm currently working on major tours. I'm looking at the uh, George the Sixth and Elizabeth's tour right before the war. Uh, that was a major tour. So that's currently what I'm working on. Fantastic. Thank you. I think one thing um, that that listeners may not realize is we talk about how big the empire is. And as, as Jess says, it's hard on a one or two day tour of Canada to go everywhere. And kind of putting that in perspective, if you're wanting to fly from one side of the country to the other, it's at least kind of five hours on a plane. Um, so it is, we're, we're talking about a vast expanse of territory here, um, which will, will really come in. If that's how big Canada is, think about how big the entire empire would be to travel in a day before planes. Um, so keep that in mind, kind of listeners, as we go forward talking about how queens relate to the British Empire. And Jess, you're not off the uh, hot seat for a second. Um, I want also to ask about how kind of your own position and perspective. We've talked a little bit about, obviously, the, the complexities between settler and Indigenous relationships. How does your own position as kind of a white female scholar affect how you look at, at queenship and how you look at this interaction with the empire? So that's a very relevant question, especially being here in Canada. So I'm in Winnipeg, which is in Manitoba. If you pull the map in half, we're pretty much the dead center of Canada. We have a very high Indigenous population in our province. I believe we have one of the highest. And I also work at a university and so and it, in an administrative role. And we... I'm grateful that our university, uh, we've done a lot of work on truth and reconciliation. The truth and reconciliation um, project is centered at the University of Manitoba where I work. And so I am very cognizant of my position. And when you read past, when I read older histories, uh, it often, it is oftentimes indigenous communities are sometimes left out. Sometimes they're treated as kind of a circus type of attraction. Um, oh, the queen or the queen's representative or whomever 
saw them and the chiefs were wearing whatever. Um, but there is a lot more thoughtful scholarship happening in my own work. I absolutely look at that. And it's really interesting to see in the press on tours, how their interactions with indigenous communities are reported. How are they reported? What does that look like? Um, but I also recognize that I am not at the center of that story. So I do try to be mindful and not speak for indigenous people and their histories. So I am very, I do everything to look at it and bring it in because I think it is a very important piece of the Canadian history puzzle, if you will, uh, but also not to speak for other communities. Absolutely. And it, it is, I know I've said this a lot, but it is such a, a complicated relationship, but it's so important um, I, for all of us as scholars to really be looking at how our own backgrounds and our own experiences influence how we see history and, and how we approach it. Francoise, how about you? How does kind of your perspective, your background influence the work that you do? Um, same thing. I'm I'm teaching most of my seminars are on contemporary Canada, the history of Canada. And whenever I teach a, a course, even on the on Victoria's Empire, half of it is dedicated to the indigenous perspective, or at least, you know, the 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 other the others basically in, in the in the story. So I stay away for half the class from the the master narrative that is always triumphant, obviously. And I look at the you know subaltern studies or again in the indigenous studies, and also um uh, I, I try to bring up more of these settler colonial criticism that is also quite current these days so I think students in, in Nantes at least they have half of the courses are in on indigenous you know studies in Canada and I'm, I'm doing my best to to open their mind to another perspective on, on the story as well on the main story so which is such an important job I think especially I've noticed it in in Britain is in in places where it's not an everyday necessity to look at this relationship. It's so easy to go, we'll look at that later. Or, you know, that's another course. That's not what I'm teaching. But I think what you're doing is incredible that actually we do have to be looking at this. And this difference between a, a dominant or master narrative and then everyone else's history, which is equally significant, it's just not what the country has decided is mm -hmm. the kind of in massive air quotes, the proper good history. Yeah. And so Francoise, what is the relationship kind of between Canada and Queen Victoria? I guess we'll, we'll hear that. And Jess, if you want to hop in, um, feel free to. <laughs> so Francoise, why don't you start? Right, off? So my impression is that um, I wouldn't say that she, there's a lot of, you know, Canada is interacting in, in uh, during her reign, you know, I will give you some examples, but if you read her letters, there's not a fascination for the country or she's not as adamant about, you know, Canada as she is probably about British India. Uh, but I think it's more like generally speaking about the settlers colonies. Queen Victoria was not that interested in finding out how her people were doing. Uh, in the in the white colonies, let's say, um, they are, were more the extension, like a province abroad, if you like. But in the case of Canada, I found that she's interest. Well, she be she becomes 
um, concern, if you like, by Canada at a very early stage of her reign, because right away uh, she she is confronted with a, a colonial crisis. Um, December 1837, January 1838, uh, there's a series of rebellions in Upper and Lower Canada, the equivalent of Central Canada today. Uh, they are asking for more responsible government. And she's still young. She's only 18. And bam, you know, she has to deal with that. Well, not her herself, obviously. Prime Minister Lord Melbourne is going to do the job for her. But nonetheless, and I wrote a paper on that, he's going to walk her through all the steps of looking at the maps, as telling her what you know a constitution in the colonies is and who are the loyalists and what are the French Canadians. So she gets a quick lecture on, you know, what is the what is the problem there? She gets to select Lord Durham as well. So that's she's the he I mean she she is going to handpick the very first special envoy with you know heavy missions to bring back law and order in Canada and he is devoted to her. So on top of writing his famous report, he's going to write specific letters to the Queen because he's so pleased to be you know chosen by her that he will report specifically to her. So we have a, a number of letters that are. Uh, just for her, and she gets, you know, the, the the gist of what is happening. So I'm not going to continue the story about the Canadian perspective on what happened next, but to me, that's a baptism of fire, which is interesting, right at the beginning of a reign. So I don't know how much she uh, she uh, understood that Canada was not always those rambunctious or those uh, loud or. It's hard because she never really goes back to never really goes back to the subject after that. The second great moment I think that has to do with the the, the history of Canada is um, the the creation of the Dominion, obviously. So um, for about four or four, five years, there are roundtables in the 1860s to prepare the creation of the Confederation. But the last roundtable in London uh, is going to see all the premiers coming to London for, you know, for discussion with the colonial office. And she's going to have them over at Buckingham Palace for dinner. And so for the Canadians, I think that's amazing to be welcomed by the queen and and at the same time she's very pleased also of the progress that these people have made um so she is satisfied she wishes them well and for her canada becomes a sort of emblem of home rule you know remember home rule is much debated at the time they get home rule because they are deserving settlers they work you know they know how to work together they can be trusted so off they launch them in, in the world with this dominion. So she's happy about this, but she's not gushing about it. And the reason why I feel that, that she's not that fascinated is because when you read the letters she exchanged with her daughter Louise, for instance, the questions she has to Louise is always, what's leisure like over there? What's winter like? What do you do? I mean, what? tell me more about the landscape and and never really about the people. Or when she, the, the first world tour, she sent her son, uh, her firstborn actually, to Canada in 1860. And you'd think, well, she's going to be excited about this. Well, no, she's, first of all, she's reluctant because he's still quite young. And second of all, the only notes that I found on upon his return is about, ooh, he brought us trophies and stuffed animals and photographs. And that was it, the collection of the artifacts and not so much the people. So, this to me, this is a, a sort of a bit of a distant relationship, looking at it, fascinated by the landscape, but no uh, warmth. And last but not least, I was I'm wondering if um, 
The first time she really um, saw a representation of Canada was probably for the, I think, the Great Exhibition, 1851. Uh, remember, they had stands for all the colonies. And there were several watercolors that were uh, commissioned by Victoria and Albert to capture the moment, in a way. And for Canada, the, the when you look at the stand, there was a... A canoe dropping from the roof, uh, lots of fur, you know, like bear skin or something and beaver fur. Uh, there was also a sleigh uh, and also panels representing winter scenes. And it's not visible in the in in the, the actual watercolor, but I know that there was this lady from British Columbia who designed some watercolors of the songies, the Indian songies, in her backyard that were selected and probably displayed on the walls as well. So this is the sort of you know the the the, the closest thing she got to Canada, you know, artifacts, stereotypes. So that's this is the impression she had. I might be wrong. So maybe Jessica, you, you, your impression might be different. Obviously, uh, I I agree with you. I feel from all the research I've done, and my research does focus more on the 20th century. But with Victoria, I always get the impression that Canada was essentially the quote unquote safe colony. We had a lot of uh, English Scottish settlers. And there are some rebellions and there are some sticky moments, but overall, we're not really causing a problem, per se, for uh, Westminster. The government doesn't need to really worry about us. Although here in Canada, obviously, our government had several moments that were a big deal here. But in the UK, it's OK. They're they're pretty safe. Um, we don't have to worry about them too much. Um, and I've. I, I always think that she's more fascinated by India and what that can bring to her. Like, in fairness, we did not give her an empress title. We couldn't do that. Um, and she, I do think she's very much, um, she, she never seen like Francois says, she doesn't seem to care about the people here much. Um, I think when people visit her, that when they go to England and they visit her, she does meet with them. And she seems, from what I've read, she does enjoy meeting them. But it's in that moment of, okay, this person has come to meet me. I am meeting with them. This is great. And then they go back to Canada or to wherever on their travels, and then it's done. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, that she, well, she kept turning down invitations to come to Canada. I'm always stunned that Victoria traveled so little actually um given the advances in technology and travel during her reign but the fact that she did send so many of her children at various points uh to canada and i think the majority of her children had visited canada although prince arthur isn't governor general until what is it 1911 to 1916 i'm pretty sure so that's after her but uh under george v but i believe victoria had originally suggested that and then it just, it took a while to actually happen. But I think it is interesting that she uses her children, much like she marries them across Europe. She also sends them across the empire to do tours and to kind of quote unquote, I always see it as a check-in and see, oh, is everything going okay? Like, what is it? Leave our business cards behind, make sure that they know that the crown is there and... 
somewhat interested. And I think like Canadians are quite, or at least um, British settlers and descendants, because obviously when you go to Quebec, it's a very different story. And here in Manitoba, we have quite a large Francophone population as well. But in terms of English speaking settlers, they have a very positive association with her. And as Francois said, they're very interested in her. And even um, we have a 19th century fort here in Manitoba that's been preserved. You go there on field trips, et cetera. And they have um, many journals from the 19th century. And even I've looked through many of the ladies' journals and a lot of them, it's months after the fact, but they're reporting on her fashion in the 1840s and the 1850s. And they want to know what she's wearing and like, how can they emulate that here um so it is interesting it in some ways seems like a one-way relationship mm-hmm. um because i don't i don't think she disliked canada at all i think we were just the safe choice she never had to worry about us we weren't as we were not irish you were not irish because we were not irish we weren't as far as new zealand and australia yeah. Yeah. so you can get here relatively quickly and i use the term relatively um and while they do, the royals do travel across Canada, we see them focus more in Eastern Canada, which makes just travel easier um, overall, especially in the period, in Victoria's period. Um, but I do think Louise is the one interesting kind of standout to me um, because she she actually left quite a mark on Canada. And it's so unfortunate if listeners don't know, she actually ended up leaving Canada because she got hurt um, in a sledding accident, uh, excuse me, they sent her abroad to warmer climates to recover, which seems like a really nice option as I sit here in the cold. Um, but uh, Louise did, uh, she left a very strong impression on Canada. And I think she was one of Victoria's greatest tools. I don't know if Victoria appreciated that. For my research, she did not. But Louise was one of her greatest tools. I think uh, Edward Stewart, the Prince of Wales, he was very popular then also, although that's shorter. Uh, Louise was here for a few years, so she makes more of an impact. But uh, she uses her children's star power to their greatest effect here in Canada. And I think she she traded on that a lot here so she could put her attention elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, I I don't love it. I'm sad that Louise has to return because she's hurt. But I love that it's in the very Canadian fashion that she's done a winter sport and has hurt herself, and that's why she has to go. <laughs> oh, it's it's but really she enjoyed, she enjoyed the West. I mean, that's uh, you know, it's some I, I've written you know in an article on how British women that decided to go in the mountains for the summer, riding horses, they found their freedom. They were able to ride horses, you know, not side yeah. saddle, but and there was something um, aspiring or inspiring maybe about the West. And Louise reflects that in her pages. So I, I I'm sure she loves Canada. So if the mother didn't, she did. So I like that to think that she somehow made up for Victoria's kind of, oh, it's cold there, isn't it? Oh, you get a lot of snow. And that's about it. I think Louise kind of makes up for some of that goes a little bit deeper mm-hmm. yeah it's it's amazing to think how much kind of Canadian history is happening in the years that Victoria is queen as you've both pointed out it starts with a rebellion and then we have confederation and then 
kind of the world has very much changed yeah. by 1901 when mm -hmm. Victoria dies mm -hmm. and so it's it's interesting to see kind of purely in the the length that the, that she is queen just how much the world changes how much she changes the world and how much the world changes her mm -hmm. and that's that's fascinating to add something to this story of interaction of canada in, in her world there's also the 1887 jubilee where she invites uh, uh, prime minister laurier wilfried laurier and his wife to come to England and she, uh, I don't know if it's she particularly, but more Joseph Chamberlain probably, who's uh, the master, you know, puppet somehow, with puppet master behind the the, the Jubilee. But they, I mean, the Prime Minister ride quite close in the parade, actually going to St Paul's Cathedral to the Queen. Uh, I think it's like second or third carriage. And they have uh, mounted police, you know, riding as well. They're quite dashing with their in their red uniform. So somehow Canada has had a has taken pride of place, I think, in the in in that last celebration anyway. So Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating to see kind of all these stereotypes that we have now of it's always cold, it's always snowing, there are mounties everywhere, everyone's seen a moose and a beaver, to think that those are the experiences that Victoria is also getting, um, which which helps, I think, to collapse the time between her and us, and to see that actually, this isn't that long ago, um, and that there's still so much that is similar, and so much kind of rightfully is different as well. Mm -hmm. So any kind of last thoughts that we have on Canada before we head to other parts of the empire? Or are we happy to go to warmer climates? Perfect. So let's head now to India, to Africa, to that section of the world. Francoise, why don't we start with you? What is Victoria's relationship with these other countries that are part of her empire? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of fascination and also the fact that uh, India and Africa, the the involvement, the strong involvement has to do in this, with the second half of her reign, when she is going to take more confidence, I think, in also playing the, you know, the or the, the, the real empress or getting involved in every decisions that are made. Um, so she developed, I think, a fascination for India at an early stage in her life. Um, she, when she was a young, still a young uh, child, she spent summers uh, at this place uh, called Claremont House that was owned by her uncle, Leopold, uh, was part of the royal family uh, estate. And um, this house had belonged to Lord Clive, Clive of India, that actually never lived there but he created the house for him and to showcase many of his artifacts after having spent a life in India. Uh, so there's this Clive room that she talks about when she visited, uh, you know, uh, Uncle Leopold over the summer. And that started, I think, her fascination for, for India. Afterwards, when she became queen, of course, there was this always this need to interact with the, the governors uh, and eventually the viceroy after 1858. She knew many of them personally. Um, she kept, you know, correspondence with them. They sent her gifts. 
um, of, you know, some of them send them beautiful saris or shawls that she kept. Then she invited several Indian princes as well to Buckingham Palace for the Jubilees, but also some of them just visited because they were, they had the time to visit, I guess. And they always showered her with gifts as well. So that explains the collection, of course, of the ivory throne, the beautiful diamonds, the exotic animals that were found, you know, in, in London uh, parks as well and servants, because she was also gifted with servants. So if you think of the second jubilee, she received the gift of two servants, and one of them was Abdul Karim. Many of you have seen the movie, so uh, or read about Abdul Karim. Uh, and I think because Abdul Karim came in her life at this later stage, she was able to, she was already a bit retired from the, the everyday business, but when she moved to Osborne over the summer, Os- Osborne House on the on the Isle of Wight, she was able to organize her life the way she wanted. For instance, by refurbishing one of the major rooms into a Durbar room, decorated uh, with portraits of uh, Indian people, including Abdul Karim, that has a huge painting of him uh, in the Durbar room. Um, she also had an Indian chef so that she was served cur- curries, uh, that she almost every day complained one of the servants that worked for her. Uh, she wanted to learn Urdu. She asked Abdul Karim to teach her some Urdu lessons as well. She un- interacted with Abdul Karim's wife and his wife's sisters, I guess. There were several women living uh, in a house next to Osborne, and they came regularly. She wanted to have the same saris, and so so they, they she was really surrounded, at least in the summer, by, by this crowd of uh, Indian people, in a way. Um, so she eventually you know, brought India home in a way. This fascination for Africa is a bit different. I think the, she in, she understood Africa a bit better by reading David Livingstone's report um, when he launched into his exploration of Eastern Africa, when he found the Zambezi Falls, which he called Victoria Falls. So she she read that very carefully and she thought, hmm, maybe we should bring a bit more of civilization to these poor African people, basically. So she was con- you know, convinced that conversion to Christianity of African tribes, that was the way to go. And she dedicated a lot of her energy, I think, to this idea of this gift of civilization, this white I was going to say white woman's burden in a way. Um, and and that was that was her plan, in fact. Um, she was an expansionist at the end of her life, 100% for conquering new land, but always with the idea of Pax Britannica in mind. For her, that meant that whenever there was conquest, it was a gift once again to native tribes that was, were not able to understand each other. She would be bringing, or her officers would be bringing order, uh, maybe civilization. They would sen- settle the tensions and that for the benefit of the of those of the colonized, if you like, uh, she supported commercial expansion into southern Africa, interacting with settled roads. She was in favor of a war against the Boer as well, Boer people, and she never understood why there was some rise of anti-colonialism in British India, why there was some violent uprising against British troops in the Sudan, for instance. Her heart went to, you know, the the, the people who died at Khartoum, uh, and somehow the Boer's rebellions were, I mean, explain why there was a war for her. 
and I, the the last anecdote I have to des- describe her fascination, I guess, different reasons for those fascinations for Africa was on her deathbed. Joseph Chamberlain, who was then the Secretary of State for the Colonies, reported that she asked how her troops her troops were doing in South Africa that day. So that was the sort of last words that uh, or last interest she had for the empire, and boom, she died. Let's say. So that's that's the fascination. It's amazing to think as you're describing and Queen Victoria wanting saris and, and wanting to have curries is thinking this somehow doesn't fit with the image that I think popular culture often has of kind of this frumpy widow who's always wearing black and just there's no fun anywhere and somehow this this idea of a curry eating brightly colored sari wearing woman doesn't fit into that but no. i think it's it's amazing how complex her own identity is mm-hmm. and that's why i think a, a son destroyed all proofs of interaction with karim and and he thought her her his mother had gone berserk in a way or was going weird as she, <laughs> she grew old so yeah this was not understood by the rest of the family by the way yeah there is if if anyone is either in England coming to England um Osborne House the the Darbor room in Osborne House is beautiful I was over on the Isle of Wight with some friends last summer and it is amazing to think you are in the south of England but you walk in and it it very much has what you would expect to see in a room dedicated to India and to perceptions of Indian identity in Victoria's reign. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend a visit. Mm -hmm. Jess, I'm wondering if if you have any thoughts kind of building on what Francoise has said about how Victoria interacts with with India and with colonies in Africa. Um, from what I know, it's it is more. She's much more interested in them, um, and I think I suspect it's probably also like I said, Canada was safe. There's new things for her to explore, and I think it's also literally and figuratively she's adding jewels to her crown. They're they're new things, and um, as Francoise has said, empire and being an empress was very important to Victoria. Um, it meant a lot to her. And obviously we view that differently now in 2023, but that was very important. So I think they're both interesting case studies and they're not the same. And I see, I've seen a lot of people kind of lump them together, but they are very different. Um, and yeah, it's, I find it fascinating. It's always incredible. And I think I'll, I'll bring this up in a few minutes when we talk about how Victoria brings empire home, but just the the influence of kind of the Indian takeaway is such a, a big industry in Britain. And we wouldn't have that without Victoria and for good and for bad without the empire. And so we've we've really been looking at how queens interact with their empire, especially how Victoria does. But how is Victoria's queenship itself affected by her status as queen of an empire or in the case of India as empress of parts of the empire um Francoise let's let's start with you and then go to Jess um it's hard to see if it's an interaction back or if she I mean the fact that she 
I mean, one of my, the first chapters I have is not, is on becoming empress, which to me is a turning point in her in her life. Um, I think she feels that she needs to become an empress in the early 1870s. She is now a widow and she wants to continue, of course, her involvement in the empire like her husband showed her. But at the same time, she is marrying her kids to families, including her first uh, daughter, who is going soon to become an empress, probably of Prussia. And there's this feeling of, uh, you know, maybe a small competition coming up. I don't know. But when you read her she, her story as well, remember she was raised by a, a baroness who told her about the history of the world and global history of Europe. And one of the, the people she admires the most are Catherine the Great and uh, Maria Theresa of Austria. So this, and, and you see those names cropping up again in the letters she exchanged with Benjamin Disraeli when she's trying to convince him that he has to talk to Parliament. He has to convince them they have to change the royal titles bill. So I think she wants to compare herself to former empresses as well. Uh, so I don't know if it's really the empire interacting with her or more like the idea that she needs to compete within Europe with other families, maybe. And somehow becoming Empress of India is going to inflate her title in, in that sense. Um, so uh, I think she wants to be remembered not just as the Queen of England, because it's too limitative, but more really as an as Empress of Ireland and India. So that, that's my Which impression. I... The interaction is more like, a, okay, how do I, how can I become big, and how can my my name, in fact, my who I am. So again, it's this egotistic approach, you know, to to the title. Yeah. Yeah, which I think again just gives us such insight into how the empire was understood. That for Victoria, it is very much, I I will give directions, and I want to hear what's going on, but. I'm still in charge and I will interact how I want to interact, mm -hmm. um, which, which is fascinating, historically speaking. And Jess, what about your thoughts? Uh, I do agree. I think she kind of, it's not luck, but she lucked out in that she wanted to be empress. And this was a time when the British military and the British Navy and the British government conquered much of the world so it it worked out well for her because i can guess that there are probably many monarchs throughout history who have wanted to spread their territories and or gain additional titles that's probably not rare at all but she lucked out in that her nation is doing that under her uh at the time when she wants it so she wants an empress title and they are able to make that happen for her. Um, so I and I think also before he dies, Alfred is also very pro empire. Um, and we see and just I'll say as a Canadian, I blame them for the 1851 exhibition and for the image that everyone in Europe seems to have of Canada that we're just like a ski hill and permanent winter. We have very hot summers. We have pretty much almost every climate possible. We're a massive country, so we have many things. But yeah, it's definitely affected by it. And it just worked out for her well. Yeah, I think there there is so much, as we say, these, these perceptions of countries that 
I think come with a a British historical narrative. There's so much based on these Victorian perceptions of empire and of of the people, the cultures. Um, and so I guess the, the second half of this question might be, again, maybe a little more interesting or more fruitful is how does Victoria bring that empire home? So we've seen kind of a little bit looking at Osborne House and we've seen that Victoria doesn't necessarily kind of bring bring her empire into her queenship. But what are some of the the physical ways that that she integrates empire into her everyday life? Francoise. All right. So, well, I mentioned the, the role of the great exhibition that uh, Jessica just uh, mentioned again. So I think that to her was uh, the she, she, she writes to her uncle Leopold to say this was the greatest day of our life. Well, it's only 1851. So um, but she I think she went to the great exhibition 24 times or something. So really, she is into that idea of encapsulating colonies you know into that those stands and uh and and again asking painters to make all these watercolors of the colonial stands that to me is a way of keeping you know close to her heart in a way representations of an empire she will probably never visit because i don't think she loved traveling more than going further in the south of france at the time but uh, even going to the south of france was a big deal um so i don't think she was a great traveler so that was the the, the way of keeping it close to her heart but i have other examples in mind when she's going to adopt literally people like i told you about collecting people um there are several instances during the history of the empire when she uh, uh comes across or rescues some young people usually aristocratic uh boy or girl uh, that has that, that because their fathers lost their title or their throne because of the empire. She's going to bring them to England. I have one example or two examples in mind. I have a young Sikh prince. Uh, he's the son of the lion of the Punjab. Punjab was just conquered in 1848-49 by the British Empire. And the poor Dulip Singh is left, in fact, without a throne. So Dalhousie, who's then her good friend and governor general or viceroy, he's going to say, well, can you take care of him? So she brought Dulip uh, to England. And Albert and herself looked after him, gave him a bit of, a bit of money. They found a sort of pension Dalhousie gave money as well. A pension was, you know, found by the, the British Empire, gave money, or at least the British Parliament. And he was able to buy a beautiful home that was already turned into some sort of oriental palace in Suffolk. And Albert and her and the kids visited Ulip Singh throughout, you know, uh, the first years when he lived there. And he carried on his life, in fact, in England. So that was one of the way she rescued one of them. But again, he was an aristocratic uh, well, he was he was born from, you know, like the sort of royal family in India. So that's why, I mean, she had this sort of fascination for him. There's another example, or I call that pet project in my in my notes. I'm not sure that's the right word, but um, it's about a little Eth Ethiopian prince uh, whose father uh, was ruling over Ethiopia, was brought down, actually killed himself because he was conquered by the British. But the little prince Alimayehu, uh, was left alone, in fact, with no parents, and brought back by a British military officer to London. And he was introduced to the Queen, who literally fell in love with a little boy, 
and decided to become his godmother. So she gave, she found a bit of money as well to for, for this boy to study and to live with this British officer. The poor boy died in the, when he was 18 or 19, and she asked to have him buried at Windsor. So they, and there are a number of other cases like that, I think four or five, um, you know, people or subjects that she sort of dots on and that she sort of build a project around them and rescue them and turn them into most of them become Christians, obviously. And, you know, she's, she's teaching them civilization directly, but at least the empire is, is brought to her uh, at this point. So that these are the cases I have in mind that could be interesting to, to study further if you're interested. I think it's it's just so interesting to see kind of the collection of people that that she brings with her. And there's some sense of acknowledgement on her behalf there that actually the empire is is destroying people's traditional power and that it is very much a, a change of authority in every country of the empire. And it's it's interesting to see how she comes to terms with that as the person who is kind of supplanting everyone else's power. I think that's mm-hmm. that's really mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, just being buried at, at Windsor, when you think of who else is buried at Windsor, that is quite an honor mm-hmm. and obviously shows how important this, this Ethiopian prince would have been to her to get that that place of honor for burial. Mm-hmm. But that's her Christian compassion, I think. And again, it's more like, a, I, I, I call that pet project. I shouldn't say that, but really you feel that she's sort of getting besotted because, oh, well, poor little thing. And I don't think she cares as much for her own children as, as she does suddenly for these, you know, um, downfallen colonial subject. And because they are born, you know, from the aristocratic background, Maybe she feels some sort of connection there. So after that, it becomes really psychological. And I don't want to end up, you know, doing this sort of study. But honestly, you have to compare with your own children that she's not even that interested in her own kids. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's always amazing, I think, to see just the differences in relationships and how they're different and why. And this really falls into that. Jess, how how do you see Victoria bringing the empire home back to to Britain, back to England? So I'll just say first off, I think pet project is a is a perfect way to describe it. Um, it might not perhaps be the most positive, but I think I think it's a very accurate way to describe it. Um, and just in terms of her quote unquote collecting people, and she definitely does, though not really. It's not a Canadian thing. Again, I think because that so many of her, essentially her own people, you don't need them. She already has them there. Um, But I find it, and I talk about this more in, um, in the next podcast with Cindy, but her, I've always thought it's interesting how she kind of collects these um, aristocrats from around the empire. When at the same time, the residential school system in Canada, which if listeners don't know was um, the Church of England, the Catholic Church. Um, There may have actually been a few Orthodox ones, although that I'm not sure of. And the government essentially 
took indigenous children out of their homes to try and stamp out their culture, their languages, their traditions, and make them more British essentially, and to make them better. So I find it a really interesting and heartbreaking juxtaposition in how that happens. Um, and just also her, yes, her relationships with her children are really, I find it really painful to read about because it just makes me so sad. Um, and she just, uh, she doesn't seem to like them a lot. And I know that happens, but it, it's very striking. And just how positively and effusively she writes about other people. It's an interesting dynamic. But my own research in terms of how Victoria brings empire home, I've actually always looked at the more physical side. And so this speaks a lot about me as a person. I like to go through the Royal Collection Trust collections when I have time. Um, and I like just put in a search term or a person and see what items in the collection are connected with them. And the amount of items that come from Canada during her reign is incredible and just the wide variety. And it is actually surprising, but it makes sense as we've talked about how she feels so many of the pieces are connected to in different indigenous groups and how she kind of, it's an interesting, it, she's essentially building a museum of her empire. And obviously the Colette Royal Collection started before her. She's not the only person to make significant um, additions and she had such a long reign, so it makes sense. But she very much has physical pieces of the empire. And as you say, in Osborne, it's again, she essentially builds herself a small Indian room, probably more. Um, and so I find it, it's an interesting thing that she is known as being like the quintessential British monarch, essentially. A lot of people think of her and she actually is trying to build what I see as like external to British setting around her. Um, and again, I think the, uh, the great exhibition, although it's quite early on in her reign is a really good example of that. And I think Albert set the tone sort of in that we're collecting all of this thing and I'll take it and say he was doing it with a positive intention although obviously we again look at it very differently now um and with the uh colonizer settler kind of theory and how we look at the great exhibition really changes although i'll say interestingly i was reading work from a scholar in canada i can't remember who talking about the great exhibition and how all the pieces like how were they taken from people in the empire and like were they just taken was it a questionable um uh, like business arrangement that they didn't have a say in? Um, did people willingly give it? And what range? Um, whereas in Britain, I've read a few things of scholars working on the British Empire and it's still, and the Great Exhibition, and it still remains a very positive thing in Britain. The Great Exhibition is still seen by some as this very wonderful thing. And it, it is an accomplishment. Certainly, I, I'm not downplaying that at all. Um, but it's interesting how differently it is viewed in Britain now and outside of it. And Joe, as you say, I find it fascinating how different the discussion about Victoria and empire is. And in Britain, with a lot of my colleagues in Britain, it is a very much, well, I'm dealing with this in Britain right now, but I'll deal with the quote unquote other later. Like I will get to that. And it's just, we don't have endless amounts of time. 
And I've always kind of thought, okay, I have to make this a priority. They are a very big part of this story. And obviously in Victoria, the empire is a huge part of her story. It occupied much of her time. It seemed to occupy much of her thoughts. Um, and it was a priority for her. And so I think we can't leave the people that make that empire up out of it. But in a lot of British scholarship, and I'd hope it's changing soon, but it's, and I've had some colleagues say, well, like, we have the entire British empire to deal with. You're only dealing with Canada. We have to deal with all of these populations. Well, that is perhaps something that needs to be reconciled with because the fact that there are so many nations who have this now contentious history um, with the empire is a difficult thing to sit with, but perhaps uh, something that needs to be pushed further because I've seen like, and as you've spoken with, and we have many colleagues that deal with different areas of the empire and different dominions that we all have these very complex histories with the empire and with Victorian specific, and it can't be a one-way relationship of the quote unquote dominion looks at it or India looks at it. We also need British scholars to engage with it as well. Which I, I think is so exciting about your work. Um, both of you, sorry, that's, that's the plural you, um, that both of your work really looks at both sides and looks at that kind of middle of the Venn diagram where both of these both of these worlds are coming together and how that interaction is so important and so complicated and it's not just bad or just good that there's all sorts that is happening in this period and Victoria is at the center of it as queen but even looking at that how much her relationships differ from different places in the empire how much her attention differs depending on the the region the, the future countries that she's looking at and i think that's that's what's really exciting about this is that we're getting to see those complexities and we're getting to see all of these nuances in a way that hopefully kind of gets people thinking about it that empire is so much more than kind of oh well now we have a commonwealth it's it's so much more than just that joe i so, have a question for yes. you i'm just oh, curious oh. what is the current kind of common perception of Victoria in the UK now? Like obviously here in Canada, if people don't know, and I think I talked about this in the next episode, in 2021, a statue of Queen Victoria was torn down um, during a march for um, when mass graves of children who died at residential schools were found. And so Victoria really does not have a any sort of positive standing right now. So I'm interested to hear what what is kind of the common perception in the UK? I'm trying to think. Um, I know, obviously, Kensington Palace is very Victoria focused. Um, Osborne House that I was recently at is Victoria focused. Um, but it does bring in some aspects of empire. Um, I think on the whole, though, the Victoria that we popularly see is the Victoria of British understanding is the the Victoria 
who's Empress of India and who has this empire and who is kind of the the downcast widow. Um, mm. I think it's often in popular culture, we miss how much authority she has. And I think one of the, the best ways to kind of summarize that is there is where I live now on the bus route. There is a quite an old building. It is pre-Victorian, uh, but it is now home to the Queen Victoria Freehouse. So a pub. Uh, and it's also home to an Indian takeaway. And every time we go by, I just think the irony, but also just the historical reality that a British pub named after Queen Victoria and an Indian takeaway can occupy the same place. Like it's it's she, not she two would have different liked that <laughs> She would have liked yeah. that. <laughs> you know? I I wonder every time I go by. But I think I think the the sense here is kind of Victoria is <clears throat> maybe not another Elizabeth II, but is is one of those, she just is. She just exists um, because she was around for so long and she was part of so much history. Um, but I will definitely be keeping an eye open um, in the coronation to kind of see how these discussions and talking about the, the literal jewels that are brought back of how those discussions about the crown jewels, about the roles of previous monarchs, how those get, get brought up. Um, and I will report back. <laughs> that, that was, that's what made me think of it because I've done recent work on just the Koh-i-Noor and the Cullinan because very relevant topics. And I've noticed a little bit people are somewhat critical of Victoria, especially on the Koh-i-Noor um, and just how that all happened and how the the royal family acquired that particular piece. But it, it's interesting to see just the sheer dichotomy of how she, how quickly her image has changed here um, to what, how it seems pretty standard there. So it's an interesting yeah. dichotomy. Yeah, I, I think, and I won't speak for the whole of Britain. I think popular images of her are starting to change. Um, but I think they're here, they're a little bit, they're, they're catching up to Canada. They're catching up to Australia. They're catching up to other places who are, are kind of going, hang on a second. She is not a 2D character. We have to flesh this out a little. Mm -hmm. So thank you both very much for such a fascinating conversation. Again, I knew the Canadian history sides, but I learned even new things about the relationship with Canada. And I learned so much about the relationship with India and with Africa. So thank you both so much for coming on and for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, uh, and sharing your insights into queenship and empire. Thank you. My, my absolute pleasure. And for our listeners who, like me, are incredibly interested in maybe this new-to-us part of the empire in India, the next episode coming to you from me and Annie Joseph is about Nawab Sikander Begum, uh, so one of the contemporaries of Queen Victoria, um, but looking at Indian queenship in a sense. Um, so... Keep this conversation in mind as you go to listen to the next episode. <laughs>
So again, thank you to my guests for today. And I look forward to having our listeners back for the rest of our series. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.